Our church has been reading through the book of Acts, which is a history of the origins of the church. The part of the Bible that we call Acts, it shows us what life looks like when we live in the kingdom of God. And we've been going through at a fairly quick pace, but now we're slowing down. We're slowing down in Acts chapter 16 in order to hone in on a particular issue that I think is, is important for us today. The issue of how decisions can be made when we are citizens of the kingdom. Last week we saw that when it comes to decision making, for those of us who have accepted King Jesus' invitation to enter his kingdom, those of us who have given our allegiance and our loyalty and our love to Jesus, we've seen that we have the incredible privilege of divine guidance when it comes to making decisions. And a primary way that God guides us in our decision making, we saw last week, is through wisdom. When we've ruled out those things that God has expressly forbidden, and we've searched the Bible and prayed for wisdom, we're free to choose the wisdom path. Love God and do what you want to do. Find the wise choice, and you've very often found the divine choice. That's the first paragraph of Acts chapter 16. We see that kind of decision-making at play. We saw that last week. But there's more to decision-making than wisdom. In the second paragraph of Acts chapter 16, in the passage that David read to us, verses 6 through 10, here we see a type of decision-making which responds to God's direct communication to you personally. Here we see God directly interacting with humans, speaking to them in multiple ways. There's this business in verse 6, forbidden by the Holy Spirit. And then again in verse 7, forbidden by the Spirit of Jesus. And then in verse 8, there's a vision from God. So here we have a different form of divine guidance, equally divine to guidance through wisdom, but it's different. Now, What is this? God speaking to people. Visions, dreams. God told me don't do that. God told me do this. Does this actually happen today? Or, or, what, or is what we're looking at here some vestigial remains of an outdated, naive, pre-modern worldview? I think this is hard for a lot of us. I think that this is hard for many of you, and actually, I'm being coy. I know this is hard for many of you in this room because many of you have talked to me about this. We've had these conversations And as I've thought about the conversations I've had with people in our church and in our community, it strikes me that our struggles with things like God said to me, our struggles with that can fall generally into four categories. Religious, worldview, theological, and experiential. First of all, it seems that some skepticism about this kind of thing, God speaking to somebody, 
um, this kind of supernatural thing. It seems that when it comes to decision-making, that a skepticism to divine, supernatural, personal communication is rooted for some people in a religious prejudice. And by this I mean atheism, which is one of the religions in the world today. And this is quite obvious. If you don't believe in God, (laughs) then when somebody says, God said to me, you're going to be skeptical. If there is no God, then of course there is no special communication by God. And there are some of you in this room who you talk to me about that. There's multiple people who attend our church who either flat out don't believe in God or they're pretty sure they don't believe. And so that kind of point of view makes you, from the get-go, skeptical of this kind of passage of Scripture and of this kind of claim if somebody makes it today. A second kind of skepticism toward things like we're talking about this morning, things like God guiding our decision through dreams and visions and speaking to us. A second kind of skepticism is rooted in a worldview, an a priori reservation about the supernatural, a presupposition against supernatural claims, like divine healing or exorcisms or miraculous earthquakes that make certain prison doors open. We'll see that next week. I'm read, it's, it's interesting. I'm reading right now a biography of Thomas Jefferson by John Meacham. I highly recommend it. It's excellent. Just yesterday morning, I'm sitting in my front room drinking coffee, reading this biography, and there's this amazing exchange between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. It's in 1798. Adams says in a speech, this is a quote, there are no principles, institutions, or systems of education that we can come up with that will be better than the ones that have already been developed. Now, this drove Jefferson mad. If you know anything about Thomas Jefferson, he was a man of the Enlightenment. Hanging in his parlor was his version of the Trinity. John Locke, Isaac Newton, and Francis Bacon. And he liked to say to people who insisted on divine revelation that this was a far better Trinity. Now, in response to Adams, Jefferson, who was a political animal, and at the time they had just passed the Alien and Sedition Acts that they would um, uh, put you in prison if you spoke out against the president. So he didn't say this publicly, but he writes a letter to a friend, and he says in this letter, he says that the human race must progress by reason and science instead of going backwards because the views of the past, he said, this is the quote, Views on government, religion, and morality in the past are, in his words, the darkest ignorance. Dark ages, enlightenment. That was his view of history. This is in direct contrast to what Emily read to us from Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and 2. The greatest concentration of first-person singular pronouns anywhere in the Bible. I said, I, 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 I will only believe it if I know it, if I prove it. Nothing that has gone in the past can be better than what can be developed now in this moment. Jefferson, Ecclesiastes. Now, Ecclesiastes says, if that's the way you're going to live, you're going to end up a bitter old man who's always screaming vanity of vanities. Everything is vain. Life stinks. Don't try it all. He tries to kill himself at one point. He gives it all up. Ecclesiastes is the ironization of that approach to life. Now, many of us have been educated 
in, a, in Western elite institutions. And when we hear things like, God spoke to me, and the stuff that comes up in Acts, our knee-jerk reaction is at best ambivalence and suspicion, but pretty often just rank skepticism. And the irony is that this view of supernatural claims is not objective. It's actually a bias. It's a prejudice. It's an assumption. It's an interpretive grid that we bring to evidence. It is not a demonstrated fact. And shouldn't academic training enable us to be self-critical and unbiased? A presumption against the supernatural is just as biased as a presumption in favor of it. So if this is you, if this is the roots of your skepticism, consider this. The vast majority of people around the globe and throughout time, as well as the majority of people in the West today, believe in the supernatural. This presupposition is the prejudice of a narrow group of Western elites. What I'm saying is that the view that mature, educated, scientifically informed modern persons know better than people in the past is rank prejudice. It's ethnocentrism at its worst. And I'm saying that, look, I have a PhD from the University of Liverpool. I've gone through the educational system. I know what I'm saying is we have to reevaluate our elitist claims that put us over against Africans and Asians and South Americans and the majority. All the recent polls indicate the vast majority of Americans believe in supernatural things. What I'm saying is that the prejudice against it in this instance is a manifestation of mid-20th century academic Western ethnocentrism. It rests on an elitist exclusion from the modern world, the majority world, as well as a sizable proportion of the modern world. In contrast to Jefferson's view of progress, we know today that history does not support a linear evolution of cultures away from supernaturalism. The myth of secularist progress, every pole has exploded it. We need to recognize that there is a tendency. We see it in Jefferson, and it's named back there in Ecclesiastes for Western intellectuals to regard most cultures in history and most people in the world today as pre-critical and in need of our own salvation of knowledge. And I would just say to you, examine the evidence. Don't take an interpretive grid to it. So for some of us, we've been indoctrinated into this thoroughgoing, materialist, anti-supernaturalist worldview. And worldviews do not crumble easily. And so some of you know this, but you still struggle to actually utter the words God said to me. Because there's a battle going on inside of you. Worldviews do not crumble easily, but I'm convinced this one needs dismantling. That we need to get on the right side of history. 
That was a dig. All right, a third reason that some of us in this room were uncomfortable, I think, with the idea of God speaking directly to people is because you come from traditions within Christianity that were formed in the 1600s as anti-Catholic. And what had happened in medieval Catholicism is that there had grown this um, cottage industry of relics, bones of the saints. And the um, accounts of miracles are just, they explode in the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th century. So Protestantism is born over against that. And if you want to claim that you're the one true church, you really need to undercut the claims of people who keep saying God is telling them they're the one true church. And by the way, if you can undercut an anti a supernatural view of the world, you can then develop a view of the Eucharist, which is purely a memory. What I'm saying is that some of us in this room, it's a long and complicated history. I'll just bottom line it. Skepticism toward God's direct personal intervention and guidance in our lives today by some Protestants is rooted in arguments against Catholics that we need to get over. And with all due respect, this is my own tradition. This is Baptist, this is the Anabaptist, and this is Presbyterian. Not in all of its forms. And I know, I know because I've read the books and I've talked with people. I grew up in some ways in this. But too often Protestantism is reactionary and reductionistic. And, I've, and I know, I hear people who argue from the Bible for this view. And what I'm trying to say is that's a justification it's not a piece of logic. Culture shapes what we think is, culture, is reasonable and cultural. And on this issue, the anti-supernatural Protestants are using a form of logic when they read the Bible that is shaped by anti-Catholic arguments combined with the radical enlightenment. It's long and it's complicated, this idea. But what happens is you end up reading into the Bible skepticism. Now, there's a fourth group of people for whom God spoke to me is a difficult concept, and this is people who are skeptical of these things because of their own experience. I'm talking about two types of experience can make you skeptical of God speaking, dreams, visions, miracles. On the one hand, some of us find it hard to believe in the kind of things we're, here, we're talking about this morning because we've never experienced it. It's human nature to be comfortable with what's familiar and to distrust what's unfamiliar. And it's very natural and common to generalize from our own limited experience into universal principles. If a few people in your circles have not experienced this kind of stuff, then it's understandable that you just find it hard to swallow. On the other hand, there's another kind of experience that makes some of you, some of us, skeptical of this thing. And it's those of you who've come from a tradition, a group of people who've abused this kind of talk. People who see a demon behind every bush and wake up every day with a new message from God and you can use that as a trump card to justify anything. So Acts chapter 16 verse 6 clearly says that the Holy Spirit forbade them from speaking the gospel in Acts. And verse 7 says, the Spirit of Jesus does not allow them to go into Bithynia. And then verse 9 says, 
describes a vision Paul received. And in verse 10, they conclude that the vision was God actually telling them to go into Macedonia. What I'm saying, last week and this week, is that when it comes to decision making, pursue wisdom, stay open to the prophetic. And the reason we should stay open to the prophetic, to the supernatural, is that the Holy Spirit, like the Father and the Son, is not just a doctrine or an idea or an experience to be tagged on to other doctrines and other experiences of the Christian life. The Holy Spirit is God who has invaded our lives with His transforming presence. The Holy Spirit is the empowering presence of God deep within the soul of the believer. This is part of what we heard in our gospel reading. John chapter 14, Jesus made the point that God comes to live inside of us. Now, do you think that if God lives inside of you, he's not going to communicate with you? That would turn him into something that is not within the realm of the way Christianity conceives of God. The same Jesus who washed the disciples' feet, who died on the cross, is with you now, right now, where you're sitting. And tomorrow when you wake up, you are in his presence at all times. And he is pleased when you trust that you are in his presence, whether you feel it or not. God's continuous life-giving empowerment is central to what the Bible is trying to say us about life today. If you want to hear from God, pursue wisdom, and stay open to supernatural surprises. Now, how do we do that? How do we stay open to supernatural surprises? Well, the best place to start is to ask God to open your ears and open your eyes to supernatural surprises. Ask Him to. I'm blind to them because of my anti-supernaturalism. I'm blind to them because of this prejudice that was taught into me in Sunday school in a tradition that's still fighting against Catholic mysticism. I'm blind to them. I'm deaf to them because I've never experienced this. I'm deaf to it because I saw it abused so much. God, would you open my eyes to see it? Would you open my ears to hear you? God loves to grant such gifts. And he encourages us to seek them. He encourages us to seek after these kinds of things. His voice, his guidance. It comes in many, many different ways. Notice it didn't tell us how the Holy Spirit forbade them. But we know from the rest of the Bible and from lots of evidence today and throughout the centuries that God's voice comes through a gentle nudge, a calm assurance, specifically spirit-guided dreams, a powerful urge, clear wisdom, an unyielding sense of calling and direction. No, I'm not saying every nudge, every assurance, every dream comes from God. Sometimes it's just last night's pizza. We need to grow up to become mature And then we can learn the difference between the voice of God and our own inner will. We need to maintain a sense of proportion. 
What, what I mean is, when it comes to sensing God's guidance, we've got to keep the Bible in its proper place. God's revelation to his apostles and prophets in the Bible has already been tested. The Bible is the canon. That, that's, a, that's an old word that means it's the reliable measuring stick for every claim to the voice of God today. And if you come from a Christian tradition that emphasizes serious Bible study combined with some of these radical enlightenment prejudices I've talked about, too often the result is kind of a cold rationalism, an uneasy fear of emotions, and a fear of loss of control, and a fear of subjectivism. But look, reading the Bible doesn't mean you're not going to get something goofy. Do you know how many times people and groups have gotten goofy things just straight out of the Bible? The, the Bible is not a surefire way to stop subjectivism. One of the dangers, quite frankly, of Protestantism that's anti-supernaturalism, to be quite frank, is that it produces a kind of powerlessness to deal with trauma, is what I've noticed. When you remove emotion from your, from your deep relationship with God, over and over and over, I sit as a pastor counseling with Protestants who are totally ill-equipped for trauma because of this move. It produces a kind of biblically mature, emotionally malnourished marriage. Friendships. It's an emotional sterility. Another danger, if you go down this road of anti-supernaturalism, whatever path you take on it, is that you will end up resisting the Holy Spirit when He's acting in ways you haven't planned for. Right? That's what's going on, right? Did you notice how, how much they had a plan, but this urge, nudge, dream, vision, whatever it was, this subjective way of God speaking, did you notice it cut off their plan? Paul desperately wanted to go into Asia. He was deeply committed to going to Asia. He had planned for it. He had packed for it. He had strategized for it. In fact, jump over to chapter 18. Look at verse 18. Acts chapter 18, look at verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centuria, he had cut his hair, which is superfluous, we all know, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to say for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. He is trying his hardest to get to Ephesus. Ephesus is one of the leading cities in, in that part of Asia. Now go over to chapter 19, verse 10. Paul and some friends... In Ephesus, once he gets there, he continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Look, when you go back to chapter 16 and Paul is trying to get into Asia, this is not uh, a flighty dude just kind of going wherever. This was a plan. If you're not open to the supernatural surprises of God, 
you're going to keep going to Asia when God doesn't want you going there. Later on, God was good with him going there. That's what we see later. But by pushing him into Macedonia, the first convert in the European continent was made. And within a few centuries, Christianity is rooted in Europe and spreads to the rest of the world. See, you can have great strategic plans. And in the first paragraph of Acts, they're right on the money. But in the second paragraph of Acts, God, because he is a person, he's not just a nebulous force. He has personality. You could miss that. So let's back up. In the first paragraph of Acts, chapter 16, in the first five verses, the visit to the believers in Syria and Cilicia and South Galatia was a wisely considered human initiative which God blessed by strengthening and growing the churches. He says that in chapter 15, verse 41, and he says that in chapter 16, verse 5. And then this small band of missionaries, Paul and Silas and Timothy, because they are open to God's guiding, they are suddenly frustrated from continuing that successful plan. And having God stop them, force them day after day, they take this strangely circuitous route to to Europe. And then, then suddenly, through a vision... Paul sees a man, a Macedon, a northern Greece man across the sea. Come over here in a totally new territory. Come over and help us, pleads the man. So this route they took when God was telling them, no, it's 200 miles. And in that area of the world, there's no way you can do that in more than two weeks. Two weeks. Timothy just signed up. And for two weeks, they're wandering some of the most rugged land in that part of the world, aimless, frustrated, right? They just went from success after success after success to all of a sudden frustrated, wandering aimlessness. God's guiding them. He's closing doors here. He's opening doors there. A nudge, a desire, a wisdom, circumstances, reason, discernment, vision. There's no formula. God speaks today. He offers guidance. Pursue wisdom. And stay open to the prophetic. Seek wisdom. Stay open to supernatural surprises from God. He speaks to us through our feelings, through impressions, through thoughts and perceptions. And we've got to learn how to find in those things the voice of the God in whom we live and move and have our being. And what we learn when we learn to recognize God's voice in our heart is that it is a certain weight a force, a certain spirit, a certain content. Now, if this kind of rank subjectivism is driving you crazy, then, by the way, do you exclude it from your love life? Does that put your love life in a different category than truth? Now, this is, I I promise you, anti-supernaturalism here is not driven by the Bible. It is driven by the radical enlightenment. You can learn to identify when God's guidance in your, is in your thoughts, in your sensations. You can learn to scan your world for marks of God's presence and guidance. The Bible is full of stories of God speaking and guiding. And our world today is full of those same stories. In this room, there are plenty of people who have experienced it. And you know what else? 
The Bible is also full of stories of people waiting on God to guide them. The book of Isaiah says, I'm going to do something, and then it's 500 years before God ever does it. We tend to read the Bible with long hindsight, and we think this stuff happened all the time. The Psalms are full of, my goodness, when are you going to show up, God? It's been 70 years since I've heard from you. Have you read Mother Teresa's biography? God profoundly, in an ecstatic vision, spoke to her. And then 50 years after going into the slums of Calcutta, she didn't hear from God again. History, the story of saints today and in the past is full of waiting. I'm not trying to say this stuff happens all the time. I'm not saying that when you, when you live in this way that it's going to happen all the time. But that's a story for another time. Let me wrap it up this morning. If we ask to hear, we must be willing to obey. Look at verse 10, Acts chapter 16, verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel there. That word concluding, it's a Greek word. It means that a group of people got together and talked about it. Look, you got to be discerning with visions and dreams and nudges, all right? And you need groups, all right? So we concluded that God had called us. So next verse. So we set sail. They obeyed. The more we obey the Holy Spirit's leading, the more we adept we become at hearing it. We've got to take it seriously and pay attention to it. God will not continue to give us leadings if we use them merely to gauge our own spirituality or keep ourselves emotionally excited. We heard Jesus speak about this in John 14, 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to live with him and make our home with him. You want Jesus to be a welcome guest in your life? Now next week we're going to see how following God's guidance very often, not all the time, but often leads us into tremendous suffering. You know what happens in the rest of the story? They have the vision, they do it, and then it gets bad. I mean, we'll, we'll read about this next week. They are beaten and thrown in prison. I mean, think about what this means about the will of God. If life is tough, that doesn't mean you're off base sometimes. It's funny, at the beginning of Acts chapter 15, making decisions by wisdom led to, led to glorious, easy success at the midpoint of Acts 16, they make decisions based on a vision, and it leads to profound suffering. We'll talk about that next week. But for now, let's just sit with this. Sometimes God guides us through ways that are extraordinary. At other times, including when we read Scripture, we simply do our best to discern what God is saying, or at least what is the wisest course, and we live with ambiguity. And we trust God anyway. What we're seeing in Acts 16, we're seeing Paul and his friends modeling for us a way of living, a way of decision-making in which our trust is not in the perfection of our ability to hear God, but in God's ability to direct whatever decisions we make. And if we do our best to hear him and obey what we sincerely believe is his will, he will lead us even in ways that we can't recognize at the time. So Church of the Incarnation, let's be much more sensitive to the Holy Spirit's moment-by-moment guidance 
through the day. Let's pray with much more expectant faith for the Holy Spirit's miraculous work. And let's learn to talk much more openly with each other about the Spirit's work in our life without fear of being accused of doctrinal error or dangerous subjectivism or unsophisticated views. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.